Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf, your host, coming to you from New York City, uh, because it's that time of the week. I'm joined by uh, Mike co-host um uh ryan goodman who is also in new york city how are you doing today ryan pretty well david thanks and in washington dc we're joined by our friend uh washington post columnist uh greg Sargent. how are you doing today greg good thank you and you good so there are a bunch of things i i, I thought it'd be good to talk about um uh one as a sort of a general ball of wax is the debate uh, and the process that's underway in the Congress regarding this idea of a January 6th commission. Um, the, uh, the House of Representatives passed um, a, a bill establishing a commission, um, embracing the idea of bipartisanship as you know, the standards for bipartisanship that were once the ones that were embraced by uh, uh, Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Um, and uh, McCarthy said, nah, and the rest of the Republicans said, nah, and only 35 Republicans voted for it. And now it is being presented in the Senate where Mitch McConnell, who once said, you know, we need to have accountability here, has also said, nah. And, you know, it raises the question about where all this goes. What's your take on it, Greg? Well, I will say that I cannot see how 10 Republican senators come out for this thing, although I really, really hope I'm wrong. Um, one thing that I, 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 I would like to sort of get this out there in the beginning, I'd love to hear what you guys all have to say about this. I, I already know what Ryan has to say about this because I quoted him on the topic in my, in my piece the other day, but I actually think the commission is... Exactly. Uh, I actually think the commission is a reasonably designed entity. Obviously, there are things that I would like about it to be different, like Democrats to have control over subpoenas. But as, as Ryan has pointed out, um, and as I wrote the other day, uh, Democrats actually have a fair amount of control over the investigative direction of this thing. And, and I've been a little surprised at the way this debate's being treated in, in, the, in the Twitter hinterlands uh, as you know, LOL, uh, Democrats never do anything without asking Republicans permission to do it. This is what public officials should be doing. I mean, this is a major event in US history and we need an official accounting. And it would be great if we could get bipartisan buy-in on a real accounting of the, on this thing. Um, and, you know, Nancy Pelosi is dealing with a lot of House Democrats who are facing re-election in districts with a lot of Republican voters in them. And 
don't you think that it does them a lot of good to be able to go back to their districts and say, you know what? We negotiated a bipartisan commission that got 35 Republican votes in the House. That is very helpful to those frontline Democrats. And whatever happens in the end with this thing, I think it'll probably die. You got to give some credit to the way Democrats proceeded there. They, they acted like responsible public officials, created a real opportunity for bipartisan engagement with Republicans, got 35 Republican votes in the House against Trump. And, you know, I give them credit for that. What do you think, Ryan? So I largely agree with that. I'd even add to it that um, many people thought that this was going to die at a certain point, that um, the commission was, quote unquote, on life support. Um, some people doubted that Pelosi was um, genuinely uh, backing it rather than just um, holding it out there as though she were. And, you know, the other part of the bipartisan nature of it is that it's legislation that is co-sponsored by uh, the um, minority uh, head of the committee, uh, Representative Katko. So it's actually, it goes to the Senate as co-sponsored by Katko and Katko gives a compelling speech in favor of the legislation on the floor of the house um, that puts the lie to many of the Republican talking points about the commission. Um, so. I do think that it was engineered in a way that it actually could be effective if it's passed into law. So, um, and, and prevents a lot of mischief that could otherwise occur. And then I also agree with what um, Greg just said that you know my ideal would be if one could still negotiate over amendments to the legislation to have things like the chair have the power to subpoena, um, which the Pelosi draft discussion did, uh, of the legislation did have that, but the CATCO uh, Thompson versions is not. Um, and another piece of it would be the deadline um, that they did seem to make a major concession to McCarthy and McConnell by uh, requiring that the commission submit its final report by December 31st, 2021, um, which seems to be at odds with uh, the commission even having the power to subpoena because they could not fight those subpoenas successfully in the courts and still produce a report by you know six months from six plus months from now, so I think those are my two major concerns with the legislation. But I still think the legislation would produce something of greater significance than would otherwise come out of a congressional investigation. Well, yeah, but you know, the flip side of all of this is that the road to no accountability is paved with good intentions, and that you know you try to get bipartisanship and you get this CATCO version of this thing and there are enough components of the deal that'll make real accountability impossible you mentioned one the deadline ryan the other is that both sides have got to agree on the subpoenas the other is it's not going to happen and 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 you know or it seems really unlikely that it that it that it that it's going to happen um isn't doesn't this all make it i mean I, I, you're absolutely right greg about the way that it's likely to play um, with voters. And I think the way the Democrats have approached it to seek bipartisanship and actually, you know, to accept McCarthy's terms, you know, and being in now in the position of being able to say he won't accept yes for an answer is all good. But at the end of the day, 
we're not going to end up with any kind of bipartisan accounting for this horrific event, are we? Well, probably not. And I, I think the essence of the, of the point here is that a bipartisan accounting into this event, this particular event, is impossible because one party is fully abandoning democracy right now, and one party is fully devoted to covering up the crime against democracy that occurred. So, you know, this thing came about as close as you could possibly imagine to something that actually could produce real accountability and be done with bipartisan support. And it got 35 votes in the House. And by the way, there's another piece of this that I don't think any of us have touched on yet, which is that it actually preserved a very well-defined scope for the investigation. For some reason, the scope question has been really kind of erased from the public debate in a major way, even though Democrats and, and a lot of legal experts keep saying over and over that the scope is the really one of the central questions of contention here. Republicans were heavily and still are heavily devoted to pushing the idea that any such commission should also investigate political violence on the left and the protests over the summer. Now, we all know why they're doing that, right? They want to both sides away what happened and essentially um, muddy up the waters in a way so that the Republican radicalization against democracy and its, its central cause in, in the deadly assault on the Capitol are, are essentially erased. Um, but the commission arrangement that they reached with CATCO actually preserved the focus on a quote unquote domestic terror attack on our democracy. And that was, I think, a central victory and, and, and an important one. And Republicans, I, I thought it was a good sign that Democrats didn't give on that point. Yeah, although, again, we haven't seen what, what Democrats may have to give in, in the Senate in order to get anywhere. Right. Let's say, Ryan, that in the Senate, the Democrats, you know, push this through. And, you know, there's this tactic Democrats use, which is, well, we're going to get the Republicans on the record and we're going to shame them um, when, in fact, they don't feel any shame at all. Um, and this doesn't really sort of damage them with their base. But but say you've got to six or seven Republicans voting for this, not going to get past the 60 vote threshold. It doesn't happen. Does this add pressure in a place like the Department of Justice because there is no accountability on the Hill or does it, you know, is, the, it, you know, that one of the Republican responses to this is, well, there are other investigations that are going on, but, you know, the, they're kind of narrow investigations by different uh, committees on the Hill. Where, where do we go from here if this thing, you know, hits the wall as it seems it might? Um, so I think uh, the place we end up is with investigations probably on the House side. Um, maybe a select committee on the House side. And there are already, uh, this, there are six committees on the House side in which all chairs submitted a request to the government for various pieces of information related to January 6th so that they have already kind of ginned up um, their investigatory effort. So that as waiting as kind of plan B I think that's where we'll see it go. Um, I also think because there is this initiative on the Hill, it's as plan B, there's 
even less likelihood that the executive branch will do anything other than what they're currently doing, which is just the criminal investigations, because Biden and Garland will each see it as no need to stick their necks out. And uh, why would they try to wrestle control <laughs> over the investigation of January 6th from Congress, uh, where uh, Congress can obviously uh, handle it if that's what they're going to try to do. I do think there is a certain kind of a cost to the Republican strategy, which is the reason that they have the December 31st deadline is they don't want the commission and all of this information to be uh, flooding into the election year of 2022. But if you put this in the hands of a select committee in the House, there's a very good likelihood that that will be a part of the mix in 2022. There's no way that they would artificially uh, cut themselves off on December 31st. That's exactly the point that I was going to bring up in my question for Greg. Um, Greg, you know, be careful what you wish for on the Republican side. If you don't get this committee, you may end up with a process that puts this stuff front and center in the midst of the crucial 2022 election battle. Yes, although this kind of goes back to what you said a few minutes ago about uh, Republicans not being shameable, if that's a word. Um, consider this, right? So let's say the select committee does stray into 2022. Um, I would assume this is not going to be a purely partisan committee, although my understanding is you could theoretically create one that only had Democrats on it, but I can't imagine them doing that. Uh, so it'll, it'll be a majority of Democrats or, or a large, I don't know what size majority, but a select committee would have a majority of Democrats. But the problem is that it would include some current members of the Republican party. And I think we all know who those would most likely be. And for Republicans, this would be a way to really excite their base into a frenzy heading into 2022 also. Uh, and given the fact that they're essentially counting on winning only with their base in 2022, with a huge dollop of voter suppression and extreme gerrymandering thrown into the mix, uh, they may conclude it helps them. I, I think it probably doesn't on balance, but they sure seem to continually go down that road and, and just hope for the best. They kind of white knuckle it down that road um, on, on a motorcycle at very high speed without a helmet, as it were. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, I guess it could kind of play both ways, but I tend to agree that that on balance, anything that makes the Republican Party look crazy has to help us, even in a midterm. Hopefully it gets our people, you know, our, our liberals and Democrats out there a little more. The way I look at this issue is that there's a whole bucket of issues here that actually aren't or shouldn't be partisan. And that is issues that have to do with protecting the integrity of American democracy and protecting our institutions and, and, and our system of justice. And so, you know, there are, you could, you could easily foresee um, a situation where, regardless of the overall outcome of this, a number of vulnerable Republicans would end up looking quite bad um, in, in the course of that kind of a, of a, of a hearing process, um, particularly if it happens as other things are coming out in court cases. But you know there are there are, there are Republicans who are actively involved in 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 reaching out to the demonstrators. There were Republicans who were actively involved in organizing this thing. There have been people who have been on both sides of it, like Kevin McCarthy. 
And if the Democrats are want to go and pick some of those people off, there's going to be a lot of ugly video that could be produced out of this process and 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 using the investigative powers of any kind of committee um, involved here. And once you sort of throw the bipartisanship away and you throw this, I mean, if there's a bipartisan commission, it's presumably going to be viewed as sort of a higher standard than the other, you know, the last word. Um, I, you know, I guess that's, you know, I'm, that, my question to you, Ryan, is, you know, are, are, are the Republicans or key Republicans who are too closely involved with this setting themselves up for exposure, you know, in this, pro because I think they're trying to protect themselves from that, but might, might have the reverse consequence, right? Um, I mean, I do think that a congressional investigation is going to insulate them to a much greater degree than uh, an independent commission would. Um, just by way of example, today, uh, McCarthy said, yes, he would uh, testify before an independent commission. And I think it'd be very hard for him not to. Um, but would he testify before a congressional investigation? That seems to favor him greatly. Um, so I think there's that part of it. And it's more difficult for democratically elected members of Congress to be reviewing the actions of the Republican elected members of Congress. And it will look partisan, even though it is truly a nonpartisan issue in a greater sense. It's truly an issue that should be taken up by an executive branch commission of inquiry or an independent commission but it will seem very partisan. And I think that's one of the other things that to me happens a lot in these house hearings happened with the Mueller investigation happened with the Ukraine matter. And it's happened now it happened in the one of the most recent house hearings as well, which is that the Republican side is very good at making it look like this is political theater that either it is, it is just pure politics or it's so ugly and you just want to turn it, turn away from it uh, because it's just so distasteful to even watch with some of the stuff that they spew or what they do with their five minutes. So I think that's unfortunately what congressional investigations and hearings look like these days. Um, well, on, on that point, Greg, there was a vote today in the House on whether or not to allocate special round of funding to the folks who make the Capitol safer. Now, you would think five months after the January 6th attacks that this would be the easiest no-brainer of them all. Like, let's vote some more money to the Capitol Police who, you know, got beat up and people died. Um, and yet it was strictly on a, on a partisan basis. To me, in some respects, that shows how much, how broken this, this, this process really is, even to a greater extent than the vote on the commission. What did, what did you think of that? Well, I think that's true. Um, and, and, what makes it even more appalling is, is the statement that came out yesterday from Capitol Police, essentially really endorsing accountability on this thing. I think we're really, this is not a surprise to, to this group, I don't think, and probably not to your listeners, but we're really seeing a party plunging very headlong into radicalization against democracy in a very deep way. And I feel like we still struggle to get the right language right on this kind of stuff, which is why we're just sort of perpetually baffled by things like 
a party line vote against making the Capitol secure when Republicans themselves were at great risk. Um, you know, anything at this point that smacks of agreeing with the libs on protecting democracy, on the degree to which January 6th was a fundamental threat to it. I mean, look, you even have Republicans completely rewriting the entire story in ways that are just almost comically ridiculous, right? Um, and, and almost, and, and, and really kind of thumbing their nose at reporters. I don't know if you guys saw, did you see the video of Andrew Clyde, the person who described January 6th as a, as a normal tourist visit? But did you see when he was questioned by Republicans after, uh, sorry, by reporters afterwards? Essentially what happened was he was, he was tracked down outside the, uh, outside the Capitol by reporters who asked him to account for that. And it's just, I, I strongly urge everyone to watch this video. He just kind of stared at these reporters with the level of utter contempt. He was just smirking at them. He just clearly was untouchable in his own mind. He could just rewrite the entire story and there was nothing the lib media could do about it and you know screw you lib media screw you liberals screw you democrats screw you pro-democracy people we're really in a very bad place now you know greg really puts his finger on one thing that i don't know maybe i'm sympathetic to it because sometimes i write things down you know for a living and 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 so words matter but you know in the in the in the, in the way that Greg went through the litany of descriptions of libs at the end there. He was, you know, screw you pro-democracy types, you know, which, you know, that's kind of like being pro-oxygen, pro-food, <laughs> you know, being pro-democracy, you would think would be fairly fundamental. Um, and and yet, as as Greg just said, that there is this kind of radicalization on an anti-democratic platform. And, you know, one of the things that some people have brought up is that the likelihood would be that if the Republicans, you know, pass some of the legislation that they're seeking to pass in the states um, and they continue in the, the course of this radicalization, that even Democrats who win are going to be challenged, you know, or they're going to be impeached or, they're, you know, that the Republican Party is now as sort of the central part of its platform is we don't care about the will of the people we care about the will of our people and that's 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 what's important and it's an i don't know ryan i'm just venting here but this to me is so shocking that you know that there is a substantial number of people in the united states who would be willing to thumb their nose at the flag George Washington, the Constitution, the underpinnings of, you know, of, 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 of this country that we've been taught to revere throughout our lives. And it happens, you know, in a, in a thousand ways. When Greg was just talking about this, I thought about there was a, a, a mini press event with uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, yesterday, I think. And somebody said, well, what about these Republicans who were actually in contact with the rioters? And he just said, he just didn't answer the question. He's like, I'm, I'm not gonna even deal with that stuff. I don't, I don't know, help me out here, Ryan, as my therapist, you know, like, <laughs> you know, um, is, there, is there a language 
that Democrats or pro-democracy people could embrace that would drive home what's actually happening here? I don't know what's around the corner in 2022. I do think what's remarkable is the amount of legislation that is getting passed and Biden's agenda being um, heavily bipartisan in the sense of uh, the country um, and the American people supporting it. So I do think going into 2022, there is perhaps um, a very strong message that could be brought about how much, it's not that the leadership of the Republican party is anti-democratic only, and I think they are with all the voter suppression, there's no other word for it, uh, but it's also anti-governance. Um, so that there, you know, McConnell's recent statement, which echoed his statement uh, with the Obama administration that he was going to try to block anything that Biden wanted, which is, just think about that. I mean, Biden's elected um, in what, according to the numbers, Trump had previously described as a landslide victory. His legislative agenda is highly bipartisan, which is really interesting because it does break through a lot of the disinformation, having that many Americans of all parties support the legislation, and they're trying to block it uh, for no other reason than you know pure self-interest in partisan gain. So I do think that there's a strong argument that that also is something that should resonate for many Americans because it means that the things that are in their direct interest are being stymied. Um, so that's, I suppose, part of the opening here. You know, Greg, you know, we, we talk about these things in many levels. You know, some of them are kind of exalted democracy. Um, some of them are kind of sort of 35,000 foot politics. But underlying it, there is something that has nothing to do with any of that. It's just self-interest. Kevin McCarthy wants to be the Speaker of the House. Mitch McConnell wants to control the Senate again. They look at 2022 uh, and they say, um, we have a chance to achieve those goals. But we don't have a chance to achieve those goals if Donald Trump pairs 5, 10, 15, 20% of our voters away from us. And so Donald Trump is essentially holding his own party hostage, saying, if you don't follow through on this, uh, you know, my agenda on supporting the big lie, on supporting me, I'm going to make it so you lose. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, and, and he's, it's, he's like a terrorist in his own party. And nobody, with the exception of you know Liz Cheney and a couple of other people, um, have the guts to have the guts to stand up to that. Is is that your take? Is my, am I getting that right, or am I missing something? I guess my one worry about framing it that way is that it might actually um, undercut the degree to which the how it, it might actually undersell how radical they're being right now. And and here's why I think that. If, you're, if, if this were only managing crazy Trump, which by the way, sometimes Republicans will DM me and say, this is just about managing Trump. You know, it's, it's just, we're trying to keep him happy, right? We're trying to keep his voters happy. As long as he's happy, his voters will be happy. But then you have all these extraneous and gratuitous things that Republicans are doing that can't really be explained that way. For, so take um, the Georgia, Secretary of State, who obviously did the right thing and affirmed the integrity of the 2020 election under tremendous duress, right? And even direct corrupt pressure from Trump himself. 
to find votes to overturn it. <clears throat> His primary challenger, Jody Heiss, is explicitly running on a platform. If you actually look at what Jody Heiss says, he's saying the reason that I'm running to challenge Raffensperger is that I will use my power to overturn a result that you don't like, and he wouldn't. Now, that's something more than just making Trump happy, I think. And, and I, I got to say, to go back to something you said earlier, I think that that's the really dangerous tip of a really scary thing here, because we could very easily see more challenges and, and other kinds of harassment of really terrible kinds directed at Republican officials who do the right thing in future elections. What if more of that starts to happen and, be, and it becomes harder and harder for those few heroic Republicans to hold the line? I don't know what happens then. And I, I don't see how we explain this just as managing Trump. Literally, as you said that, my, my, you know, my stomach turned a bit. Um, because I really do see that as the central issue. I really do think that that the future of our democracy is at stake. And frankly, I'm not real happy about the odds. Um, but it's not just a, at stake in elections. Um, uh, Ryan, as, as you know, and as you've written about and as Just Security has written about, um, uh, you know, this week uh, there was a revelation that the, or an announcement from the New York Attorney General's office that um, the uh, 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 the the investigation that they were running into the Trump Organization uh, and its officers was more than a civil investigation; it had now become a criminal matter. Uh, and that they were working hand in hand with the attorney general's uh, the district attorney's office in Manhattan on this issue. And Donald Trump responded to this with a statement that essentially said, this is fake. This is a witch hunt. I will not cooperate with this. Essentially taking the exact same playbook from the election, saying, I'm going to use this with the judiciary. I'm going to say this is a rigged system. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge this. So he's not just going after one branch of government. He's going after two branches of government with this. Um, you know, do you think that, that, do you think that that um, can work? Uh, and, and by work, I, I don't just mean, you know, is he going to avoid consequences if somebody finds him guilty? But, 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 but couldn't this, you know, shift public opinion, make him feel like a victim, and also possibly, you know, be used to sort of gum up the works? Um, so I think it's hard to predict, because I think it can go the exact opposite way. Um, so I think, yes, he can use it as um, corrupt, politically, uh, politically elected individuals are trying to go after me using the, ju the justice system and uh, play the victim card, which is amazing because he also plays like as though he's the strong man, but he's also the victim um, and rally support around him. At the same time, um, I don't think that will necessarily change the outcome of those criminal proceedings. So if we really are going down that path, then I think there's a lot of heat on him and there's a huge amount of heat on the Trump organization. And the Trump organization might crumble under the weight of a criminal investigation. Um, very hard for them to get loans and other things like that while they're under indictment and a criminal prosecution. 
And um, the indications are, though it's hard to read the tea leaves exactly, that the New York Attorney General's repositioning on this to take it down a criminal path does suggest that there's some strong evidence there because she's actually putting herself politically on the line and she's doing it at a stage in which um, the Manhattan office, uh, the district attorney's office has been going at this for a long time. So she must have great visibility into the status of their case and for her to then align herself with their case means that she must see something very strong there. Um, there's also some writing from a former IRS uh, criminal investigator. And he says that when the IRS does this shift from civil to criminal, it actually puts their civil investigation on pause. Um, so there, you know, this means that she has something real in the game, real skin in the game in terms of shifting to the criminal uh, process. So if I were Donald Trump, I would not be thinking this is a, you know, <laughs> Mana from heaven, what a good opportunity I've been given here. I think that this could be a real blow to him and also hugely time consuming um, for him and the organization to deal with that as a kind of distraction crisis. Um, then, and I'll just throw one other thought out there. I do think this actually dovetails with our prior conversation about the uh, commission. I do want to register that I am still um, wanting to wait out what happens in the Senate. I do not think that this is necessarily the Senate is a graveyard for the uh, January 6th commission, uh, despite that's the way it currently looks. Um, Senator Schumer has the ability to time exactly when he brings this to a vote. Were he to bring it to a vote in the immediate term, then I think, yeah, it looks like it would lose. But what happens if in the next few weeks, there's a criminal indictment of the Trump organization and some of its officers, potentially including Trump himself or the family, um, then he might look like seriously damaged goods. And uh, there might be a different winds blowing in the Senate in terms of doing the right thing uh, with, respect to the nine, with respect to the January 6th commission or other legislation as well. So I think it could, I think it's more likely to go in that direction if there is something like a criminal indictment coming. Well, this gets to one of the age-old questions of the past four years, uh, Greg. Um, I don't know if it can be age-old if it's only four years old, but you, you know, you get the 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 the, the thrust. Uh, and that is, what if Donald Trump is seriously wounded? How do you think that affects this anti-democratic radicalization that's taking place in the GOP? Well, I was just going to bring up something related to that, which is I wonder whether those types of statements, just to go back to Ryan's point, it's hard to see how those types of statements would help Trump legally. But I really wonder whether it's like a signal to, you know, his militias and street thugs and the Proud Boys and so forth. And, and you know, the, the insurgency that he's kind of trying to command from wherever the heck he is, I guess, Mar-a-Lago, right? Um, Oh, is he been in Jersey? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, right. So, I think these things could go down two separate tracks, right? You could see the further radicalization uh, of the street violent types, right? But as evidenced by the fact that 35, I want to stress this again 35 House Republicans voting against Trump is not a small thing, uh, right? And, and so, there's clearly some consternation and some angst in the Republican Party around what's happening with Liz Cheney, that sort of the, 
the unbelievable purging of her uh, and, and around the, the, the sort of ridiculousness of rejecting a commission that was created around every concession that Republicans asked for. Um, and so, yeah, I think that obviously, I think an indictment makes that harder. Obviously there are cracks here. This is not, I think you're right, Ryan, I think you're right to sort of talk about or, or to talk about the Senate as something that is very kind of fluid, let's put it that way. You never really know what's going on in the Senate. And, and, and I think if there were something like that, I absolutely agree, something could turn. Uh, you know, these senators are talking to each other about this stuff. There's plainly a lot of discomfort with what's happening right now. The way Republican leaders are keeping the lid on that is to say, look, we just got to get through this. We got to get, you know, we just got to get control back to prevent the radical left from destroying the country, which is sort of a place that Romney can exist somewhat comfortably, right? Um, so Romney and people like him, pro-democracy Republicans can kind of exist in a place where the greater good is to, you know, take back the country from the radicals and restore conservatism. So we just have to get through this kind of rough patch to get there. So I do think that if there are indictments and stuff, those people start to really get more nervous. What do you think of that, Ryan? I, th I think that's right. I think that's right. I, I don't think, I think it's easier for them even to make arguments as to why they don't want to be associated with or pulled down by Trump. And what is, I mean, that's the, the beauty of this is what looks like a crime family. Right? It's, it's not like we're grasping for straws. And if in fact the strength of the New York prosecutor's case is as great as it looks like it might be, this means that they might have evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, uh, probably a lot of it in paperwork um, that proves financial crimes, which I think is also something that can resonate with the uh, many Americans in terms of uh, tax crimes and things like that. Uh, he's seriously damaged goods. And it, and it does play into the frame of who he is um, and what he, and how corrupt he is and how self-interested he is. And I just think that no matter what, I think that that is an, that is an opening um, for people to, in some sense, seize back the Republican Party from its current trajectory. One last question on this, uh, Greg. One, one thing that strikes me is how deftly Joe Biden has avoided getting involved in all this stuff. And that, you know, that this guy is like, I'm about governing. I'm about solving problems. I want to solve big problems in a big way. Um, and I'm going to leave all this to somebody else. And from a political point of view, in the context of everything we've just talked about, it's like there's a two speed world, you know, and, and you know, the Biden speed world is it, the, the word Trump hardly comes up. And that's kind of amazing, given what we're going through. Uh, and it seems to me incredibly shrewd. Do you agree? Or has he been too quiet and too disengaged? Well, I'd actually like to frame it in a way that maybe we could 
I'd love to hear what you guys think of this. I, I think there's what you're putting a what you're putting your finger on is an, a, a real tension, right? Um, on the one hand, Biden signaled very early in his campaign that radicalization, right-wing radicalization, was something he would more forthrightly confront than even some of the other Democratic primary candidates, right? And he centralized Charlottesville, talked about restoring the soul of a nation, um, and talked about democracy under threat through the campaign. And then during his inaugural, he was very clear that right-wing radicalization is a severe threat to the country. And yet since then, it's been a little quieter. I think they're really, they're really uncertain on this, on, on how to handle this. And, and this creates a problem, which I'd like to hear from you guys about too. One thing I've been trying to talk to Democrats about a little bit is whether the case should be being made more clearly to voters by Democrats that the Republican Party is a fundamental threat to democratic stability going forward, as opposed to them just sort of being in their comfortable healthcare space, you know, which is where they always want to be, right? Health, health, everything's about healthcare. Every election's about healthcare. They win, they think. Um, and so you've seen Democrats stepping out of their comfort zone a little here. So for instance, I think the DCCC is running ads attacking Republicans uh, for their radicalization. They may be using things like Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and, and QAnon and so forth. And I think there's another Democratic PAC that might be also running ads like that. So they're kind of getting moved to a place where they really have to try to talk to voters about what we're talking about here, even though they don't want to, right? Because by the way, a lot of these moderate Democrats, my guess is, especially the ones without national security credentials, right? Would be a little loath to go there because they need to seem bipartisan -y and, you know, very, um, uh, willing to work with Republicans and they don't like to say bad things about Republicans that bother uh, independents and Republican-leaning uh, independents and so forth. But, you know, we do need them to be prosecuting this case more forcefully. And, and Biden, by the way, is, is the other day, you could probably speak to this, David, he, he, um, he, he went out of his way to describe our, one of the conflicts of this moment as one between democracy and autocracy. And when I heard that during the, the, state, the speech to Congress, I thought, okay, now they're going to go down that road a little bit, right? They're going to really try to prosecute this case against Republican radicalization. But then now they backed off of it. And so and they're back to a place that you just brought up, which is a sort of a safer space where he's really just all about keeping his head down and getting the job done. I worry that Democrats aren't up to making the case they need to make. Well, I think that's a, a, a really interesting point. Um, Ryan, what's your reaction to it? I think that, I mean, I, I agree. I, I also think that, and I think that your description, David, of where Biden's head is at seems right to me in the sense that it's about passing big, and it happens to also be popular legislation and governing and moving forward and solving problems ahead of us, not ones that are necessarily behind us. And I think that to me, one of the greatest threats that we live in in the moment is the anti-democratic forces and the disinformation that comes with it inside the country and the white supremacy that is linked up to all of that. And you have to deal with that. Um, and that's the long-term threat to our country. I think it's like a long-term threat, like climate change is a long-term threat, except it's gonna hit us earlier. 
And to not address that as a top priority and to not, in some sense, retroactively look back, have an accounting, have accountability, um, I think is short-sighted in the sense that those forces then will overwhelm us. And one of the instances is the big lie. The big lie is fueling a lot of the voter suppression uh, legislation that's being passed at the state level. Um, and so we have to turn around and address it kind of squarely. And uh, I, I fear that that's not coming from the White House because the White House has got this kind of forward orientation to it. Um, so I'm deeply concerned about that. And I think they might even be telling themselves, you know, a bit of a story that they are actually doing very good things on um, domestic extremists and uh, violent extremism as a threat, but that's all this kind of policymaking, institution building, forward-looking, uh, not dealing with this other dimension of it. You know, I'll just say one thing as we, as we, as we wrap it up here, but in, in response to what you guys have both just said, when Biden brought up democracy versus autocracy in that speech, I think he was talking about the United States and China. Uh, and I think he was talking about foreign policy. And I think he believes, and he has often tried to frame the situation in the world right now is one that pits democracies against autocracies. Um, and of course, you know, that's a multi-layered thing. It's, you know, it sounds like kind of big think of foreign policy, but but the reality is, of course, that um, Vladimir Putin has supported movements across Europe and in the United States um, that have uh, embraced, uh, uh, have, there have been enemies of democracy and that have embraced um, uh, demagoguery, ethno-nationalism, attacks on, on, on Western institutions. Uh, and you see these around the world. There are Trumps everywhere. AMLO in Mexico, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Erdogan in Turkey, um, uh, you know, potentates across um, the Gulf, uh, Xi Jinping, Duterte, uh, uh, in Poland, Orban in Hungary, etc. But having said that, you know, I think there's something else at, at play here. You know, Joe Biden's a 50-year politician. And it would be very tempting, and frankly, some people tried to present it this way, to cast him as a kind of cynical product of Washington establishment. But I think he's something else. I think he's a product of a different era. I think he's a product of, you know, he was born in, what, 1942. He grew up in the post-World War II era. I, you know, he, he discovered politics listening to the speeches of John F. Kennedy, that Kennedy's behavior aside were kind of stirring and uplifting. There was a certain jingoism in that era, whether it was the Cold War, the space race, et cetera. And, and, and he kind of, I, I think if you cut him, he would sort of bleed these kind of Captain America values. And that, you know, Donald Trump bleeds Gordon Gecko values. You know, he bleeds the values of the 80s, transactional, he who ends up with the most toys wins. Um, and, and that a lot of people in the Republican Party are like them. And I do think there is this kind of, 
cultural divide. And some of it has to do with the fact that Reaganism, you know, was kind of a fraud. You know, Reagan was this kind of cheerful, you know, cold warrior who, you know, talked about mourning in America. But while he was cutting taxes and promoting grotesque inequality across the United States and giving big paydays to all of his buddies. Um, and, and, you know, we're still feeling the consequences of all of that. Um, and, and honestly, you know, I think the given the gravity of everything that you've just talked about, and I'll end up this mini monologue here, uh, given the gravity of this anti-democratic radical movement in the United States, I think we're really, really lucky to have a president who, whatever Biden's flaws are, and you know he's not a lot of things that we might want him to be, who's of that vintage, who have those values, you know, uh, who has that kind of somewhere in. I, I think if 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 he was left alone in a room, and and Trump started talking some of this stuff. Biden's impulse would be to punch him in the nose. You know what I mean? I just think, I just don't, I, I think he would be offended by it. Anyway, we shall see where this, this all uh, takes us. Um, and this conversation, which has been going on for some time, will continue. And I hope it continues with you, Greg, joining us here. Uh, Kavita will be back next week. Uh, we have a lot of very interesting programming coming up next week, including uh, I'd mentioned to some the, that we have a one-on-one with Richard Haas. That'll take place with next week. We've got a couple of Middle East specialists who are going to join us on our Monday show. Um, and uh, and we'll be back here next Thursday undoubtedly talking about something. I can't wait for the one where we're talking about the indictments um, and and some accountability. Um, uh, the, the, the thing that gave me the most hope here, Ryan, was your suggestion that that might happen in a matter of weeks and not months or years. Um, don't bust my bubble, but that was, that was, that was a highlight for me. Uh, so thank you all for that. Um, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you want more information on what we've got going up, go to the, DS, the dsrnetwork.com. Look uh, at, at, at the things we're doing, but also click on membership and support what we're doing. Uh, thank you, Greg. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, thanks to everybody for listening and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>